Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm joined by former army officer and history biographer Nigel Collette to talk about his latest book, which investigates the death of a young bisexual police officer in Hong Kong in 1980, who was found dead with five gunshot wounds. Even 38 years on, the story of John McLennan is a controversial one, a young man who chose suicide at a time when homosexuality was illegal in Hong Kong and how men like him were hounded while a much bigger issue of paedophilia among senior government officials was hushed up. Nigel Collette is the author of A Death in Hong Kong, The Suppression of a Scandal. Back in the 1970s, life for gay men, and in those days it was homosexual men because the word gay wasn't so common, life for homosexual men in Hong Kong was not too bad. The law hadn't changed. The law in England had changed in 67, but in Hong Kong it had not, and homosexual acts were still illegal. But nevertheless, most of the time, the gay community was ignored and allowed to live a reasonably social and uh, untrammeled life. There were bars, there were clubs, there were saunas, and people could associate and weren't prosecuted unless something really public happened that went wrong. Uh, For instance, a fight in the street between two men, um, which could lead to something in the courts. But most of the time, people were let alone, and the Hong Kong government was relatively tolerant. Then, in 1978, a case erupted which was concerned not with homosexuality, but with child abuse. And the police arrested a lawyer, a businessman in Hong Kong, called John Richard Duffy. And Duffy had himself been using his boat. He was quite a rich man. He had a yacht and his house to entertain young boys, 12, 14-year-olds. And he had been parceling out, giving out some of these youths and children to some of the contacts that he had. And some of the contacts that he had were very high-placed indeed. One of them included the then Chief Justice of Hong Kong, Sir Geoffrey Briggs. And the police wanted to catch Duffy because they wanted to crack down on child abuse. So Duffy was arrested, and Duffy spilled the beans about the people that he was supplying young people to. And it would have been extraordinarily embarrassing if this had ever come out. So the reaction of the government was to set up a special unit from the police to investigate, in inverted commas, but basically to shut the whole thing down. So the Special Investigation Unit, the SIU, was formed, and throughout 78-79 did a very low-key and very ineffective job of trying to find people who were connected with Duffy. It found nobody, it prosecuted nobody. Then in 1979, a new Attorney General came out from England called John Griffiths. Uh, He was appointed from London, unusually, not from the Colonial Service. And he had no background in Hong Kong. And in his mind, he'd been tasked, I think, in London, and he himself wanted, to do something about child abuse. And to be fair to him, I think he had a a really good motive. But unfortunately, uh, he didn't distinguish between child abuse and ordinary homosexuality, and nor did the law. So when he resurrected the SIU and tasked them to actually pursue the people they should have been pursuing, the net was widened. And instead of looking for child abusers, they started to pick up ordinary gay men who were having relations with each other uh, or who were using male prostitutes in private and uh, had never caused any trouble, who were not blackmailers, not procurers, uh, not uh, abusers of children. And that was what was the background to the John McLennan case because he was one of the people that the Special Investigation Unit was tasked by the police to focus on. They wanted a number of victims, a number of people to prosecute, to show that they were actually doing their job. 
and they chose almost one from the police, one from the legal department, one from the civil service, and one business person. Uh, it was across the board. But none of them, of course, were the important people whom Duffy had named. John McLennan was, in his case, he was almost caught in the crossfire because he'd made himself very unpopular in the police force a year before when they had been trying to dismiss him uh, also because of a sexual case. He was bisexual and had been taking young men back to his quarter in Yuen Long. And when accused of this, he had sought assistance from the magistrates for whom he was working in Fan Ling, and they'd enlisted the help of Elsie Elliott, as she was then, who became Elsie too, the great campaigner, um, the uh, fighter for justice, the fighter against corruption, um, the hero to much of the Chinese community, and the thorn in the side of much of the expatriate community here, and certainly of the government. And Elsie took his case on, and Elsie wrote immediately to the governor to have um, the case taken up. And, of course, the governor got involved, and the police case was dismissed immediately, and John McLennan was reinstated in his job and survived between 78 and 79. So when the special investigation unit was set up, there was a beautiful mechanism for mm. the police just to get rid of someone they didn't like very much. Yes, he indeed. That he had been made very clear to him as a, a policeman here that, that uh, after that situation the year before that he didn't fit in and uh, and that there were no chances of promotion I, I think he probably knew his days in the force were numbered somewhat yes i think so though i think he wanted to stay and he had hopes that he could stay he didn't realize that he caused such hatred for himself amongst the senior officers who'd been told what to do by the governor who resented um elsie's campaign on his behalf who certainly resented being told by government house what to do and I think he didn't realise that his days were numbered, so his contract was almost over. But they, I think, were very happy to use the SIU to get rid of him quicker than they would have done if his contract had ended. And they tasked the SIU to do this without really any background, any case, no evidence whatsoever. So the SIU went off to ferret around to get some, and in fact manufactured quite a lot of or tried to manufacture evidence. But the SIU, by chance, came across a male prostitute whom John McLennan had paid for sex. And that boy then led to a group of other people who were forced to confess that they had been also paid for sex by John McLennan. And that gave the police a case. Um, they came up with eight charges of gross indecency towards the end of 1979. And then John McLennan found out. Um, the boys themselves, who were feeling guilty about having betrayed him, went and told him that they told the police this. And then the day before he was due to be arrested, which was the 15th of January 1980, his boss, who was a, a, a good man, a kind-hearted man, a superintendent named Trotman, who was superintendent at Hong Hong, decided he wanted to give him a chance to defend himself. So he called him in the day before and said he should get a lawyer, um, that he needed to defend himself because the SIU were coming the next morning to arrest him. And at that point, John McLennan knew he had nowhere to turn. Uh, he was on the surface a very conservative type of man, very heterosexual in his behaviour. His family was Scottish Presbyterian, very old-fashioned, very conservative, and he'd always portrayed himself as very much in that mould. He was now faced with the fact that he had no, no recourse. He, he knew they had a real case. He knew he would go to court. He knew he would lose and lose his job, be shamed in public in the newspapers, and his family would find out. And I think at that point, because he had overnight to think about it, and he had access to the police armory in Hong Hong, he decided at that point to kill himself. And so he went down to the armory early in the morning and drew out a revolver and some ammunition and went home to his police quarter in Ho Man Tien 
and in the early hours of the morning, around six o'clock, he managed, and this is the thing that upset most people and people didn't believe, he managed to fire five revolver rounds into his own body before he died. If you were going to your next army officer, if you were going to shoot yourself, how would you do it? If I was, <laughs> if I had ever thought about it, I think a bullet to parts of the head that you knew were going to kill you straight away. But poor John McLennan um, was not an expert in firearms. He, he was known to hate revolvers. He didn't want anything to do with firing. Uh, and he managed to put four rounds very close to his heart, but not through his heart and one through his abdomen, none of which were immediately fatal and would have given him time to pull the trigger five times um, to finish the job off. And my interpretation is that he was sufficiently determined that he was going to do this, that he had time to do it, and he just kept pulling the trigger until finally he fell over and died. This is coupled with the fact that the revolver that he was issued with was so low-powered that it had no kickback and the rounds themselves were so uh, old and badly kept that they themselves um, hardly went through his body. Two were actually caught in his body at point-blank range. And only one, three went through. One was caught in his pullover behind his back. So when they tested the revolver afterwards, it, it didn't make any impression on a block of gelatine hanging from the ceiling whatsoever. No recoil on the firer, and the, and the gelatine didn't move. So it, it would physically be possible to do that had you the determination to kill yourself. Yes, you do describe, I mean, uh, in addition to telling the John McLennan story in terms of what went on around that time and all the players in government, in police and activists like Elsie Elliott, later Elsie too, and of course Aileen Bridgewater who then is also keeping records and investigating. But at the time, I mean, what the police were given in terms of resources were pathetic. They had very little, and the government was particularly mean with money for the police. They didn't even have money for typewriters in their offices. They had to buy them from money which was illegally acquired in other sources. They were badly equipped. Um, I mean, why were they so tight, considering you'd had the riots in 66, 67? I'd have thought that that would have been, you know, we, well, we need to bolster them up in Hong Kong. Yeah, they'd just begun to think about it. And, and the then Commissioner of Police, Roy Henry, was uh, at the beginning of a wave of reform and, and of improvement to everything. And, and things got better after that. But at this stage, at the time of the case, things weren't still very good. Uh, police vehicles were poor, there was no communications, they didn't have radios, um, they, they had to drive around in their private cars rather than their police cars. The whole thing was, was not well funded. And I think it's rather typical of the colonial government. I, mean, I was here in the army a bit after that. The government wouldn't pay for anything it didn't have to. Uh, it had to be forced to pay for everything that you needed. And they resented it. And, and the government's entire ethos was not spending any money. So the police were under-resourced. And in this case, to them, it seemed to be a clear case of suicide. Um, he was inside two locked doors in his flat. He'd left a suicide note. He'd drawn out his own revolver. They thought it was a suicide. Therefore, the investigation wasn't very thoroughly done, even in their terms, because they assumed it was self-inflicted. And also, some of the resources we would have now, in terms of DNA and all the rest, they, they just wouldn't have been available. No, and, and, and they didn't even have equipment to, to, um, to test gunfire. Or They had it, but they didn't use it. They didn't bag up the hands, they didn't test for gunpowder. They had fingerprinting, but they didn't actually do much fingerprinting around the room or of the weapon or of the suicide note. 
though they couldn't actually prove that he'd fired the revolver. It was too late by that stage when they discovered they needed to think about it. DNA was definitely way, way into the future, and any other kind of forensic testing was pretty limited too. But actually the investigation afterwards recorded an open verdict. Yes, the police were sure it was suicide, but the public heard of the five revolver wounds and couldn't believe that someone could do it. People from the Samaritans who knew of suicides said it wasn't psychologically possible. Army officers rang into Alien Bridgewater's program and said you couldn't do that with a, a revolver. Even if you tried to hold it against your chest, it would recoil back and you couldn't aim all the time. And so people didn't believe it. And to make it worse, Elsie uh, too was aware, Elsie Elliot was aware, that the police had been attempting to get rid of John McLennan and on one occasion had tried to set him up with a homosexual bait. Uh, they tried to fix him so that they could prove that he was gay. Uh, that hadn't worked, but she knew about it. So Elsie suspected that the police were quite capable of foul play. Elsie was not a great fan of the police and had um, no compunction about saying that she suspected that they were behind some of this. So the public was fed some of this information and that, that added to the disquiet. So when it came to the inquest, which was two months after the death, the police produced the report that they thought it was suicide. The coroner suggested to the jury that it was suicide, but the jury wasn't having it, and the jury went for an open verdict, which meant that the question was still a big question mark, unsettled, uh, which, of course, threw the cat among the pigeons and just increased the call for an inquiry. When we look back at John McLennan, who, who was he exactly? So you're saying that he's born of this uh, conservative Presbyterian Scottish family. He's from a farming background. Yes, his family were farmers from generations, way up in the, the northeast of Scotland, on the edge of the highlands, on the coastline. And very quiet, small communities, um, mostly Presbyterian, uh, very conservative very slow to um, give their opinions, uh, not showing emotion, the kind of people who would just accept things and never complain. Living in an old-fashioned world at that stage. And he became a policeman in Scotland, um, in Stirling, which was a little bit more advanced than, than the northeast of Scotland. But nevertheless, when he came to Hong Kong, a completely different world. But it seems to me he was quite a simple young man, not particularly intelligent, an average policeman, no particular foibles, except like many of them, he drank quite a lot in those days, uh, had his wild side, but he also had some gentler sides. His family spoke very warmly of the way he always looked after them, sent them presents he wrapped himself, and um, kept in touch with them, went back and decorated their flat when he went on leave. They were in hospital and, and he refurbished their flat, or their, their farmhouse for them. But since I wrote the book, I met uh, someone who knew him through music. He had a friend in the police force whose name I had never heard of before, doesn't appear in the book, who was a composer. And he would take him to musical events. And at the musical events, apparently, he was gentle, quiet, and shy, and a totally different kind of figure from the rather ebullient conservative type uh, that you hear of in the police messes. Yes, but I would uh, think that, yes, there's this... Um, do you think that, that some of that sort of... Not, not exact machismo, but, but uh, as a conservative, uh, rather bullish behaviour was to cover up who he really was? I think, yes, it was a front to uh, conform, um, to act out the part that he thought would be acceptable. Uh, as many people did. Uh, it was just the way that if you're a gay man in a uniform service or the government service, you thought you probably had to behave so that no one would spot what you probably were inside. Mm.
homosexuality was actually only legalized in Hong Kong in 1991. Um, so, in, but you're saying that in the 70s, in a sense, people could, you know, have a good social life. It was kind of um, ignored in the way that it was accepted. But um, did people have to, you know, if they were in the police force, in the army, was it a kind of don't ask, don't tell? Pretty much so. You kept your head down. Uh, I think um, it was more easy in the police than the army. and In the army, it would not have been possible, for instance, as in the police force, to have uh, your partner living in the police quarters with you. Um, in John McLennan's flats, there were three police inspectors who had their boyfriends living with them uh, quite openly in the flats, and they were paying the extra charges for the extra person, so the administration knew they were there. The army would not have allowed that. Um, but the, the police had, had managed to let that go by. It caused nobody any trouble, and nobody was um, worried about it. Uh, it was not a security risk. Nobody thought it was. Um, this case changed it all. And after the case, and the, 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 uh, the government finally constructed a policy about employing homosexuals in Hong Kong, and the policy was basically that we will not employ anybody known to be a homosexual, and we will not recruit anybody known, and therefore a large number of people lost their jobs. And so the old days of being able to get by evaporated. And uh, the result was a lot of people lost their jobs. And That's lost, extraordinary. Yeah. So basically you are a homosexual, therefore you have lost your job. Yes. And there was no redress at all. And, and there still is not in Hong no. Kong. No redress now. No. No, that, that is something to be uh, emphasised. It might have been legalised in 1991, but you can still be sacked uh, for your sexual orientation. Yes. Your boss is quite entitled in Hong Kong still to tell you to your face that you're gay and you're fired and give you one month's notice or money in lieu of salary uh, of, of time. And that's it. Um, there is no law against it. Uh, and certainly that was used in the aftermath of this case. We've no idea how many people. Um, it's never been possible that there is no um, public record kept of how many people were fired because of this. But we do know, and, and they're still here in Hong Kong, many of these people who suffered for it. And, and talent was lost from the police force because of it. A lot of good men lost their jobs because of it. I'm talking with Nigel Collette about a death in Hong Kong, the McLennan case of 1980 and the suppression of a scandal. This is, in fact, the winner of the Royal Asiatic Society Hong Kong History Book Prize 2017. It was quite a task to take on. You started off in 2011 through your friendship with uh, the late broadcaster Aileen Bridgewater. Yes, Aileen was a tremendous character, a huge pillar of the Foreign Correspondence Club and became a friend. And Aileen and Ken had been involved in um, the campaign calling for an inquiry. Um, Aileen was a great friend of Elsie Elliott and Elsie too. And uh, Elsie used Aileen's uh, chat show on commercial radio um, to, as part of her uh, means of rousting up public opinion. And because of her access to the radio um, records and the press cuttings which the commercial radio kept, Aileen had managed over the couple of years of the case to accumulate a huge amount of documents, um, press cuttings and documents from various government sources uh, and her own particular notes because she interviewed a lot of people in the case. And Aileen loaned all of this to me. Uh, and I kept it, and I've still got it. Between 2011 and now, I still have this. And Aileen wanted me to write the book because she was insistent that someone had to write the non-fiction account of John McLennan's case. She thought it was so important for Hong Kong's history. Yes, her mm. husband, Ken, in fact, wrote uh, a novel called Open Verdict. 
Yes, um, came out I think about three, four years ago. Um, but Ken uh, himself, and I think he was wrong, he didn't feel that he wanted to write a non-fiction. He wanted to put his ideas about the background to the case in the novel. And so he, he mixed up uh, a good deal of fact with a good deal of fiction. So it's quite difficult to extract which is which in the book. But his is, is, is his own view of, of what could have happened behind the scenes. But Ken didn't want to write the non-fiction, so they left it to me. You had, as you say, this, this very good base. Also, how was court reporting done in those days? I mean, was it, was it quite, uh, you know... I mean, when I look at some of those newspapers, they were very dense. The reporting was terrific, and the reporting is probably about half the record we have of the whole case. And without it, we wouldn't be able to reconstruct the chronology uh, and the characters of the people concerned. Uh, newspapers like the South China Morning Post and the Hong Kong Standard, and in those days also the Sun and the Star, had reporters permanently attached to the Commission of Inquiry over the eight months that it sat. They reported almost verbatim the testimony of the people who were at the inquiry. And they also did a lot of background work on it. So the press cuttings themselves are a tremendous source of information in a way that sadly nowadays, because newspaper layouts are different than the, the amount of staff coverage that, you, that can be given is smaller. I think it wouldn't be possible nowadays to do the same. But it's so important in this case because what records that are held by um, the Hong Kong government we're not allowed to have access to. Uh, if there is anything that the Hong Kong government has, they're not saying. And, for instance, the transcript of the inquiry, it exists, no doubt, in some location, and I think probably in Hong Kong, but maybe also in London, but no one would m admit that it exists. So the 14,000 pages of, of testimony uh, which were taken during the inquiry are not available. So who did you inquire with? The, the judiciary? The, the judiciary, the home department, the legal department and the general secretariat to see if we could find any, any source of this information here. Also in London, but London uh, I don't think knows that it's got a copy because they have so much record that's not um, so far recorded properly and so London hasn't so far come up with it. It might do one day. So we're left in Hong Kong with a very small excerpt of the transcript which is in Hong Kong University Library which is of the main characters involved in the case. Now, that's really important, too, because it gives you the exact word-for-word -word transcript um, as it was taken down, but it only includes the major characters. So there's a very large amount that's missing in the Hong Kong University Library uh, edition. So, but you were able to, as you say, um, put this book together from these various sources. Were there times where people were telling you not to inquire about this? Nobody actually warned me off, no. Uh, I, I think um, nobody um, attempted to stop me writing it. I think there were a lot of people in Hong Kong who didn't really want the story written. The story is very raw, particularly many of the people who lost their jobs didn't want the story resurrected because they still feel a tremendous sense of loss over the whole thing. There's bitterness um, between various people who were involved still because the, the case involved tremendous personal clashes. Um, there were people who were acting as police informers who are still in Hong Kong, one particular, and there are factions who certainly wouldn't want to sit in the same room still. So there's a lot of background of unhappiness here, and many of the people are still in Hong Kong now. It's interesting also when you start with this uh, special investigative unit, the SIU, that's set up ostensibly to uncover the paedophilia ring, really. Yes. In your words, it's a cover-up. Did any more of, about who these paedophiles were or that situation ever come out? Nothing came out, and nothing ever has done until now. So did the Chief Justice stay the Chief Justice? He retired. Um, in fact, he went off to Gibraltar and um, carried on being a judge in Gibraltar. 
And I think it was quite clear that everybody knew, and he wasn't in any way uh, fingered for it. None of them were. Uh, no, there was no attempt to track down or um, prosecute any of the people involved in those sort of activities. What was the big fear that if this was all uncovered? The big fear was British prestige, um, control of the colony. Thinking back, we're at the time when the run-up to the negotiations with China were due in a few years. Um, they began only three years later in 1983. The idea that it would have been a good idea to allow the public to know and the Chinese to know that British officials had been exploiting Chinese youths in the colony of Hong Kong at that time uh, would have been uh, impossible to contemplate. The governor was Sir Murray Maclehose, who was a very powerful, highly effective operator who controlled almost everything in the colony and his will drove everything in the place. He would not have wanted anything to disrupt his relations with China, uh, which were improving at that point, or to have overturned any British prestige in the colony. And at that stage, he had, had led Hong Kong through the end of the year of corruption. He'd set up the ICAC. He had spearheaded the removal of people who were publicly known to be corrupt. And he had put Hong Kong on the path to the modern state that it is now. Then along comes the, um, the possibility of revelations of paedophilia amongst very high-priced people in, in the establishment, not just the police, but also commercial, legal, um, across the, the, the Hong Kong establishment. It would have been a complete setback for everything he'd worked for for something like the last seven years of his life. And I believe that he was determined it was never going to be made public, and he very effectively made sure that was the case, and he succeeded. And I have to say I admire him. He, he, he was absolutely successful in doing this. Was it the right decision? Ah, it's a good question. Uh, if I'd been him, I think it was the right decision. It gave no justice to John McLennan. It never gave any justice to any of the youths who were abused. It certainly brought no justice to those who were abusers, but it kept the lid on things in the colony, and... That's what his job was. Uh, and I think, actually, he probably did all he could do. Yeah. What I was impressed with with this book is that you make... You, your people are very real. They, they've got a lot of flaws. Um, nobody comes out of it uh, particularly well. Also, through Aileen's records, you've got the devastated parents at the end who then also seem to have been told to shut up. They were advised by the government's lawyers to stop calling for an inquiry because in the government lawyer's words it would never do any good and they accepted it because that was the kind of people they were they didn't make a fuss and so they, they accepted what they were told finally by the government But the impact of John McLennan's death on the family was extreme It was devastating, it, it ruined their lives it destroyed their family and they lived in grief I suppose for the rest of their lives and Aileen and Ken went to Scotland to meet them and two years after the case ended, Aileen had been given um, power to take some of the property that was still surviving from John McLennan's estate back to Scotland. And so they spent two days with them at their farm and saw the, the disaster that it had caused the family. Yeah, the sister had a nervous breakdown, didn't she? The sister had a nervous breakdown. The 
elder brother refused to talk about the whole case for the rest of his life by the look of it. And uh, the parents were living with grief. Um, it was a terrible sadness for them. And they were still very proud of their son. And they told Aileen all about his, uh, his childhood and his background. And this is where in the book I, I can quote the, the things that Aileen recorded of what they, they told her. And then the, the final words in the book, which I won't spoil, but um, Aileen recorded what they said to her about what they thought about his death. And it was a very, very touching um, record to read. Yeah. What would have McLennan's day-to-day have been? What kind of police officer was he? He was a very junior police inspector. He'd been in the police by the stage that he died for seven years. And he'd spent some of that out of the police force because he'd left to go back to the Metropolitan Police in, in England, but then come back again. So he'd never made, um, he wasn't a great thruster. He was never going to make the fast promotion. He was a steady, average, ordinary, middle-of-the-road man who, in his final jobs, was doing small things like investigating burglaries, collecting forged Hong Kong dollar notes from the public and forwarding them up the chain, and, and writing reports about petty theft on the streets. He wasn't the sort of man who knew a great deal about anything secret, although people suspected there might have been a deep, dark secret behind his death, there is no indication that poor John McLennan knew anything about anything, really, and was just an ordinary copper. John McLennan, who died at the age of 29 in 1980. My thanks to Nigel Collette, the author of A Death in Hong Kong, The Suppression of a Scandal. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>